0: Today we are launching a new teaching series on identity, and we're going to be talking about the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is all about. And I encourage you, if you're not in a small group, to uh, get involved in one. They begin this week, and if you don't have one to get involved in, you can call Lisa Shaw or myself, and there are groups that meet in the homes of our members, and some of those have openings, but if you can't find a group that works on Tuesday night here at 7 o'clock, each week, Lisa and I are going to host a group, and we're going to do that up in the youth room. If you haven't been to the youth room, it's a great uh, spot to meet, and we're going to watch on the big screen together, then divide up into smaller table groups. We have about 10 or 15 people right now that are signed up for that, and if you want to join that, you're welcome to come. There's no uh, commitment, but it's a, there's a great video teaching component that complements what we're studying on Sunday morning, so invite you to come and check that out. Well, what, what comes to mind when you think of the word kingdom? When I say kingdom, what sort of images or thoughts come to mind? Perhaps it's a, a place, a geographical area maybe where kings and queens still uh, rule kingdoms and have a domain. Uh, maybe it's associated with royalty. Uh, one, one definition of the kingdom of God is the reign and the rule of Christ. The reign and the rule of Christ, wherever that's recognized and affirmed. The reign and the rule of Christ. The great uh, late Dallas Willard kind of bottom-lined it, and he said the kingdom of God is simply God in action. God in action. Whatever or wherever what God wants done is done. The kingdom of God is God in action, and whatever he wants done, it's done. That's the kingdom of God in short. And I love what the Apostle Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 4, verse 20. He said, the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. The kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. So often as followers of Christ, we can be all talk. We can talk up a storm. But our faith has to have feet. It's got to be followed up with action. First um, Corinthians 13 says that if our actions and our deeds are not accompanied by love, we're just noise. We're noise. And so often we are just noise to an unbelieving world because our our faith is not accompanied with action and with deeds. In the Old Testament, we read in Psalm 22, All the ends of the earth will remember and turn to the Lord, and all of the families of the nations will worship before you. For the kingdom is the Lord's, and he rules over the nations. Psalm 145, verse 13, <clears throat> your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. God's reign and God's rule is never-ending. It's eternal, because he never dies and needs someone else to secede him. He never has to hand off that baton or pass uh, that crown to another. His rule is throughout generation to generation. And I want to begin today by kind of suggesting some things that God's kingdom is not. There's an outline for you in the bulletin if you want to take notes. But first of all, I want to suggest that God's kingdom is not about a physical place. It's not about a physical place per se. It's about a person, and that person is Jesus. In the Gospel of Luke, in verse 17 and verse 20, Luke says, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, Jesus answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. It's not like it's a physical location or building, uh, something tangible that you're just cruising along. You go, oh, look, the kingdom of God. Many times Jesus said to people, the kingdom of God is in your midst because his presence was there with them and his rule had begun and they didn't even realize it. It's not a physical place, first and foremost. It's a person. I love what author and pastor Mark Buchanan writes about his recent uh, experience in Africa. He said, Twice I visited heaven and close, uh, or close to it. The Maasai Mara, perhaps the greatest wildlife preserve in the world. The Maasai Mara is part of the vast grasslands that stretch over the fertile plains of East Africa. Here, elephant, cheetah, gazelle, wildebeest, water buffalo, giraffe, crocodile, rhinoceros, hippopotamus, and hundreds of other furry or scaly, tusked or horned, fleet-footed or slimmering, flying or crawling, sun-loving or night-stalking creatures roam and soar and wade and burrow without the fear of man. But the two different guides that I had on the trips that I took couldn't be more different from one another. The first guide, Stephen, made the trip a thing of joy and wonder, an endless surprise, The second guide, William, almost ruined the trip entirely. The difference was one thing. Stephen paid attention. William didn't. Stephen had good eyes. William didn't. Stephen looked at the right thing at the right time with the right focus, and William didn't. Stephen was a Maasai man in his early 20s who grew up a few miles from the very ground we crossed together. The land was in his blood. Every hill and grove, every bend of river, he knew in his bones the personal histories of many of the animals that we saw. And he had an intuition for finding animals that, at least to a suburban living white guy like me who thinks that a squirrel is a major wildlife sighting, seems supernatural. He would stop and gaze at something two kilometers in the distance. It looked to me more like grass and acacia. But he would drive toward it, and maybe 300 yards away, I'd finally see what he saw. A mother rhino and its baby grazing in scrub brush, or a pride of lions sleeping beneath a tree, or a pair of cheetahs sunning themselves on a shelf of rock. William was a comba man in his mid-50s who grew up in Nairobi. He couldn't see for looking, but he wasn't looking anyways. He spent most of his time chatting on his CB with his friends. He just followed the crowd. Wherever other vehicles congested, he went. We saw the animals, yes, but we saw them within a swarm of dozens, sometimes hundreds, of other sightseers, each jockeying for a better view. One time we were traveling alone from the pack, and a herd of elephants grazed at the roadside, mere feet away. William sailed right past them because he didn't see them. William, we yelled, elephants! Huh? Where? Where? I tell you about Stephen and William to tell you this. The kingdom of God is at hand. Pay attention. You could miss it entirely if you choose to look at the wrong thing. I think many of us get so focused on things or the circumstances of life that sometimes we miss seeing God and his kingdom, what he's doing in this world, how he's at work, and how we can be involved And the truth is, if we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, we will never miss the kingdom. He will always help us to see what he's doing and how the part that we play. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Kingdom Life, talks about the intertestamental period between Old Testament and New Testament and the period of exile and bondage where the Israelites had to flee or actually were taken from Jerusalem, to Babylon, and he says, it took the harrowing events of the destruction of Jerusalem and the Babylonian exile to bring the Jews to an understanding that God was not bound to a special place, namely Jerusalem, and that he was still present and in action where there was no visible manifestations in the heavens. This is the lesson of the intertestamental period, which ripens in meaning until it comes ...out of the mouth of John the Baptizer. There is always a kingdom of God, even in the absence of a place and a political kingdom through which it rules. There is always a kingdom of God, even in the absence of a physical place or a political kingdom through which God rules. The kingdom of God has come. Well, the kingdom of God is not just not a physical place, but a person... It's also not just future-oriented, but now. The kingdom of God is not something that you and I enter one day when we die. It's something that we become a part of the moment at conversion, the moment that we give our life to Christ. We are are part of the kingdom, and we enter into the kingdom. It's accessible to us. The problem is that many of us grew up with kind of a conversion-centered approach to the gospel where conversion or coming to Christ was the finish line rather than the starting point. Kind of like, give your life to Christ, that's it, and you know, then you won't have to go to hell and you can live forever with him, and kind of like, great, we did that, it's all done, now we just sit around and wait for him to come back. Giving our life to Christ is not the finish line, it's the starting point. And the big problem with a conversion-centered gospel is that it lacks a missional appeal because it it doesn't motivate us to look beyond ourselves to the kingdom of God and the mission of God it doesn't motivate us to live a kingdom life many of us grew up hearing this question over and over and over again you probably heard it if you grew up in the church if you were to die tonight would you go to heaven if you were to die tonight do you know that you go to heaven and then the crisis followed with, well, this is how you can be sure and give your life to Christ. And many people prayed that prayer out of no love for Christ or desire to be in relationship with him, but they just wanted their eternity secure. And that, that may be a good starting point, but fear is not the way to enter the kingdom. It's not about, if you were to die tonight, would you go to heaven? The kingdom life or understanding of God's kingdom leads to a better question. And that question is this, if you knew that you were going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? If you knew that you were going to live forever, what kind of person would you like to become? Because the kingdom has begun, has begun. it's now, and our actions and our choices are shaping the person that we're becoming. Every day, every moment, the choices that we make <clears throat> the things that we do are shaping the people that we're becoming. It's not about waiting for one day when we see Christ face to face and we're transformed into his glorious image. That day's coming coming and, and Maranatha come quickly, Lord. But until that time, the choices and the actions that we participate in are shaping who we're becoming. So the kingdom of God is not a physical place. It's a person. It's not just about the future. It's now. And finally, I would say it's not... A passive experience, but it's one of active participation. The kingdom of God is not something that we sit passively in as a bystander and just observe. The kingdom of God is something that engages us, that involves us, that calls us to to join and participate in the work of God. The great change that Jesus brought was the accessibility of the kingdom to everybody. You ever think about that? Previously, before Christ came, the only people that felt close to God were the religious leaders. And as you read the New Testament, you, you know the religious leaders were not close to God. They thought they were, but only in action. They, their hearts were far from him. But Jesus came to bring accessibility of the kingdom of God to everyone, particularly those that were rejected and despised within Israel. The, the, the diseased, the lame, the blind... You know, all of those that were considered unclean by society. And it's the heart of the gospel that Jesus brought the gospel, he brought the kingdom to those that previously were shut out and rejected by the religious elite. One of the most scathing chapters in all the New Testament is Matthew 23, where Jesus just rails on the religious leaders of the day because of their hypocrisy. Because they, as the shepherds and the pastors of God's people, were leading them astray and preventing them from experiencing the kingdom. An example of this is Matthew 23, verse 13, where Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. You don't enter it yourselves, and you don't allow other people to enter it. Like, what hypocrites? You're supposed to be the ones that point people to me and, and, and show them the way to the kingdom. But instead, you're keeping people from going, and you're not even going yourself. Like, what's the point? The kingdom of God is for everyone. Everyone is invited to participate and get involved rather than to just passively observe what God is doing. Well, there's three things that I believe the kingdom of God here on earth means. And the first is that scripture or prophecy is fulfilled. The kingdom of God on earth means that scripture has been fulfilled. Prophecy has been fulfilled. The prophet Isaiah in chapter 61 of his book, verse 1, he says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. To proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners. That was Isaiah's mission as a prophet. But it was not only his mission, but that's a messianic prophecy. Meaning that it, it foretells the mission of the Messiah, the anointed one, Jesus. Who would come in the name of God to accomplish God's work on earth. And Jesus would do those very same things. That's why Luke chapter 4 and passages like it are so profound. In Luke 4... Verse 15, it says, And Jesus came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath, and he stood up to read. And the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. And he opened the book and found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind. And to set free those who were oppressed. And to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book. And gave it back to the attendant. And sat down. And it says that the eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fixed on him. Riveted on him. And at that point he said today. This scripture has been fulfilled in your your presence. In your hearing. Everything that Isaiah talked about making the gospel accessible to the poor to the to the lame to the blind to the diseased that's what i have come to do i am god in human flesh here to accomplish god's mission and to usher in the kingdom of god <clears throat> the second thing that i believe god's kingdom on earth means is that the king has come it's hard to have a kingdom without a king without a ruler Someone who enforces that reign and rule. The kingdom coming means that the king has come. That passage that we love to read every time at Christmas from Isaiah chapter 9. For a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Christ came, was born in the manger to Joseph and Mary and fulfilled this prophecy And scripture says he came to usher in the kingdom of God that would have no end that would bring justice to an earth of injustice, that would bring peace, eternal peace, that he would be the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the eternal Father. So each of these prophecies in Isaiah we see fulfilled in the king who has arrived. Jesus has come and has begun God's kingdom. That's why in Matthew chapter 11, when John the Baptist is arrested and thrown into prison, He's having one of those dark nights of the soul because John the Baptist is the earthly cousin of Jesus. His whole ministry was to be a forerunner, to herald the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus comes and all this amazing stuff is happening, but John's thrown into prison and he's awaiting death. And basically he's he's asking, are you the one or should we expect another? If John's asking that, he of all people The one who was heralding Christ's coming, you know other people had it. And he's asking that because, like, I hear of all these wonderful things that are happening, but what about me? And Jesus responds with this. Go and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. The lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have the gospel preached to them. And blessed is the one who does not take offense at me. That sounds like a very cold and sensitive answer to your cousin who's struggling with imprisonment and impending death without knowing the Old Testament. But the point is, Jesus is speaking to his cousin in the very familiar language of the Old Testament, passages that John would have been proclaiming. And Jesus is saying, yes, I am the one. And I'm fulfilling everything that was written about me. I am doing right now the mission that I was called to do. And so you've been faithful. You've done a great job. And now I'm ushering in the kingdom. In fact, it says in a, a, a similar passage that uh, in Mark cha- uh, Matthew chapter 4, that is the exact time that John was taken into custody, at this time Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. So John does a job of pointing people to Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah. He's imprisoned, and at that very time, Scripture says, that's when Jesus comes to proclaim God's kingdom, that it's here, that it's begun. And that's why Jesus could say things like in Luke 17, Behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. I'm here. The kingdom has begun. Well, the presence of God's kingdom on earth means not only that prophecy is fulfilled and that the king has come. Thirdly, I believe it means the mission is now. The mission is now. Mark chapter 1, verse 14 and 15. Now after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's, it's tangible. It's right in front of you. Repent and believe in the gospel. Jesus, before he left this earth, in Acts chapter 1 verse 8, said to his disciples, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria, and even the most remote parts of the earth. The kingdom has come, the king is here, and the mission has started. And God wants to involve us in that mission. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is a beautiful passage that talks about what God has done for each one of us. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone comes to Christ, gives their life to Christ, uh, they are not the same anymore. A new life has begun. That they become a new creation in Christ. And that God takes the old things away. And he says that all of this takes place because God has reconciled us to himself through Christ and through the cross. But then he goes on to say that God has given us this ministry of reconciliation, which is just a fancy word of saying bringing people back to God. And so Paul says that our mission in life and our mission in the kingdom is to go out and plead with people to come back to God. Come back to the one who made you. Come back to the one who knows you. Come back to the one who forgives you and heals you and understands you. The one who is always with you and will never fail you or forsake you. That's our ministry. That's our mission. We've been reconciled to God. We've been brought back into right relationship with God through the cross. And now it's our task, our privilege, to invite others to come back to God as well. And that's what it means to be part of the mission. I want to draw some application as we close. Um, in the video this week, in the small group time, we'll, we'll do a good job at application and helping you to understand uh, how it it kind of folds out in our life. Somebody said that our, our growth in kingdom life is significantly uh, connected with our active participation with Christ through grace. Meaning that we grow and mature in the kingdom of God as we actively participate with God and kingdom work through his grace. And I love this definition of grace that I heard this week. It's by a guy named Keith Matthews. He wrote a book called The Kingdom. And he says, Grace is God's action in our lives, helping us accomplish what we are incapable of accomplishing on our own. So we so often think of grace as God's love and mercy when I fail or when I sin. And grace is definitely that. But grace is also God's involvement and action in my life, helping me to accomplish what I could never accomplish on my own. What a beautiful picture of grace. That's why somebody said once, there, there is no failure in Christ, because God is constantly empowering you to do what you could never do on your own. Paul exhorts us in Philippians 2.12. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. I was saying to the first service, that's not a verse that you hear very much. Because it's hard to reconcile with our faith. What do you mean I'm supposed to work out my salvation? I thought, you know, for by grace are you saved, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. What do you mean work? And with fear and trembling, I don't... I don't serve a God that I fear and tremble. Wait, how do we reconcile that? Well, Paul, if you read it in context, right after that, he says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. It's God doing the work through you. God wants us to work, yes, but he's motivating us and energizing us To do everything he calls us to do. That's why Paul would say in Colossians 129, To this end I labor and I strive, struggling with all his energy, which so powerfully works in me. I love that phrase that Dallas Willard popularized. He said, God is not opposed to effort, but to earning. God is not opposed to effort. God is opposed to earning, to that mentality of entitlement that I have earned God's favor in His grace. I've earned my salvation because I've, I've lived a good life and I've done the right things. God is opposed to an earning mentality. But you read Scripture, God is never opposed to effort. God wants you to work your tail off for Him and for the kingdom, knowing that He's the one working through you, energizing you, motivating you to do the work. That's the beauty. I read a quote this week that rocked my world. This guy said, not only is obedience the highest form of worship, so what could be more than singing wonderful songs to God with all of our heart? Well, obedience. We can be singing wonderful songs to God and be far from Him. Be rebellious inside, living our own life, doing things our own way. Not only is obedience the highest form of worship, but it's also the primary means to changing the world. I love that. It's not only the highest form of worship, but it's the primary means to changing the world. Howard Snyder in his book, The Community of the King, he says this. He says, Until the kingdom of God can be demonstrated in our relationships of love with one another, we have nothing to say. To an unbelieving and broken world. Until the kingdom of God. Can be demonstrated in our relationships of love with one another. We have nothing to say to an unbelieving and broken world. Paul said it in 1 Corinthians 13. If I speak in the tongue of men and of angels. But have not love. I am just a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. You know. To the unbelieving world that doesn't know Christ, many of us appear like noise because we're just talking and talking and talking. And there's very little doing. There's very little demonstration of love and grace and forgiveness and the presence of Christ. But Scripture says when we do those things, that's when the kingdom of God becomes visible to the unbelieving eyes. I want to ask you to stand with me as we close today. And I'm going to lead us in prayer in a few moments. But before I pray and close us out, I'd like us to recite together. Those of you who are able to stand. If you're not able to stand, the Lord hears you sitting down wherever you are. But I'd like for us to, to close today by reciting the Lord's Prayer together. Because the significant aspect of the Lord's Prayer to me is that we are asking God that his kingdom might come to earth. That his will might be done on earth as it is in heaven. Amen.